There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. And Greg, last week we had on our show Mark Goldfried, the Chief Investment Officer and Head of Fixed Income for Canoe Financial. And he was talking about the bond market, the fixed income market. And today we're going to talk about that other market that's getting a lot of attention these days, known as the stock market. So joining us today is Eric Ristabin. Eric, thanks for coming on the show. And Eric is the Global Chief Investment Strategist for Russell Investments. And Eric is joining us from the home of the world's first gas station, the Seahawks, Pearl Jam, the birthplace of Jimi Hendrix, and Starbucks, otherwise known as Seattle. So welcome to go. the podcast, Eric. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. And we're just going to take you through a couple of questions and let you go with it. So, Greg, you want to start us off? First of all, Eric, maybe you can just tell us how you got to where you are today. Like what led you to this career path and to your current position with Russell? Well, I was one of those guys that could never answer the question of what do you want to be when you grow up? I knew I was interested in investments and I went to school in Tacoma, Washington, where Russell was headquartered for a very, very long time. Got an internship in college and never left. So yeah, I've done lots of different things. Started on our institutional side in the US, working with US really large multi-billion dollar pension funds, and then eventually kind of moved over from kind of working directly with individual clients on investment strategy, moved into a role that was actually in the investment division that's more broad and an opportunity to talk to more clients and different clients, which I enjoy a great deal. Which leads into my next question, which is what exactly does a global chief investment strategist do? I couldn't just net it out and say I talk for a living, (laughs) which is not all that far off the mark. Look, I always tell people I am the son of teachers. My dad was his professor. My mom was a kindergarten teacher. And a lot of what I see my role is is education. I clearly work with the team in developing our outlooks for the global economy and the global markets. I work with individual investment teams, kind of walking through what are the scenarios in terms of what may happen economically and in the market. But ultimately, I think what I really enjoy doing and what I spend most of my time doing is talking to clients and investors like you guys, yourselves, and institutional clients around the world, kind of help them. There's a lot of complexity in this world right now. And I view my job as to kind of help people work through that complexity and maybe see a more simple line than people want to necessarily give them on a normal basis. I think a lot of people in our industry want to show their audience that they are smart by sounding smart. And they use a lot of buzzwords and a lot of jargon. And they overcomplicate things to the point where I think people have difficulty following the thread. So I try to thin out the line and make it a little clearer for folks. And they keep letting me do it, so I must be not doing a horrible job at it. (laughs) I'm sure not. (laughs) As you say, there's so much jargon in the industry. I used to work with a fellow who would always talk about EBITDA and Kager, and that's all he ever talked about. And 
assume that people he was talking to maybe knew what he was talking about, but I actually assume most of them didn't. So maybe tell us a little bit about the global stock market is obviously big. It's bigger than people might know, but how does the Canadian stock market compare to the U.S. stock market in size, just for our listeners? And then an offshoot to that is how big is the opportunity set in the global stock market? You have to forgive me. I don't offhand know exactly where we're sitting in terms of the Canadian marketplace as a percentage of the global capitalization. Let's just simply say the U.S. is bigger (laughs) and probably on the order of 11 to 12 times bigger. The U.S. as you probably, and I know all of your clients have a lot of familiarity with not only the U.S. and all of our foibles as a country, but also our stock market. Our economies are clearly linked. Our markets are clearly linked. There's a lot of connectivity between our two nations. And I think when you think about the U.S., it's really dominated the global stock market in terms of performance over the last, well, basically 12 years. That is changing recently, and we think that will be likely, that change will continue going forward. But right now, the U.S. is, I think it's right now, 58% of the world's market capitalization, which is interesting because we're one-fifth of the world's economy. So that's a little bit, we may be a little too big for our bridges at this point. That's interesting. And sorry, Greg, I'll just take one more here and give it over to you. But when you think about where that market cap comes from, I think about didn't the U.S. start as like an industrialized nation, like it was a growth nation? And isn't it now more of a consumer-driven nation? Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, our consumption in the United States represents roughly 70% of our economy. So just Americans living their lives is about 70% of the economy. That's actually on the very high end of what we see in terms of kind of first world industrialized countries, obviously Canada very clearly in that category, but it's not as high above what everybody else thinks. Most nations that are industrialized and have mature economies, consumption represents 60 plus percent of their economy. So we're on the high end. And yeah, the composition of our economy is different. Actually, to correct you, if you go back all the way back, the United States started as an agrarian base. We were an agriculture-based economy. And that's pretty standard. There's a standard evolution to kind of economic evolution. There's steps. But you start as agrarian, subsistence farming, then agrarian and exporting, and then you become industrialized. And then what begins to happen is you build wealth. You're no longer competitive in the kind of industrial realm. And so you move more into knowledge base, more into services, and that's as we kind of go through, that's what the United States is doing. And frankly, most economies are going to go through that that arc. Well, listen, Eric, you brought up the economy. So why don't we start there? Give us your kind of lay of the land as far as the global economy and stock markets, of course, which many of our listeners are interested in, where you see things going in the short term as well as the long term. Let's start with the relationship between the economy and the stock market, because there is one. It's not as tight as people would think. The best description I've ever heard of the relationship between the stock market and the economy came from, I believe, a professor farmer at UCLA. And he described the relationship as two drunks tied together by a long piece of string, (laughs) 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 which which is evocative to say the least. But if you think about it, and I always use Seattle as an example, these two drunks start the evening drinking in downtown Seattle. And if people are familiar with downtown Seattle, it's at the bottom of a hill. I live at the top of the hill, Capitol Hill. 
So as you go straight uphill from downtown, you go to my house. And so think of it as the relationship is when those two drunks decide they quit drinking in downtown and drink in my neighborhood, they start walking up the hill. And what will happen is the more sober of the two, the economy moves at a fairly steady pace and usually pretty consistently either up the hill or down the hill, but in this case, up the hill. And the economy is all over the place, just meandering all around it. And sometimes it's way below the economy in terms of its ascent up the hill. But because that string eventually gets stretched, eventually, if the economy keeps going up the hill, it's going to drag the drunk up the hill. So that's, I think, is the way to think about it. And a lot of it's a lot of volatility in the markets, usually less volatility in the economy. For instance, we spend 90% of our time economically in expansion. We spend about 10% in recession and actually a little less than 10% of the time with the market in recession or the economy in recession. And so when you think about it is you have to be thinking about from markets, where is the economy headed? And right now we have come off the fastest, one of the deepest recessions we've ever experienced in the world. So the downturn that we saw from about middle of March to the maybe the beginning of May for about a two and a half, I guess it was probably middle of February, if you start the clock, to the middle of May, you had about a two and a half month recession and then an enormously intense recession. Did something happen then that drove that? Yeah, <laughs> something happened. Yeah, there was this little thing called COVID. And then in order to stave off the health crisis, the governments went to containment measures. And the idea was, we got to stop the health crisis. That's a now problem. And kind of what happens to the economy is a then problem. <laughs> and that's what happened was we went through and that was an economy, an economic expansion in the U.S. that was the longest in history. We'd gone the longest in the United States without a recession at that point in time ever. So it kind of relieved a lot of the economic pressures. Recessions kind of are, I mean, I think they're inevitable because human beings, we inevitably do things that end up causing recessions. So that took a lot of the pressure off the economy. And, in terms of the excesses that we're beginning to build. And since May, we've been growing basically continuously with some ups and downs and some paces, slowing pace and faster pace. We're in a little bit slower pace because of what's happening from the virus. And the governments, both in the US and Canada and Europe, did a really good job of trying to minimize the economic damage. And in Canada's case, Canada actually had some of the most significant responses fiscal spending and monetary policy related policies to ease the impact, the long-term impact of that recession. So they set the stage in order as you would for an economic recovery to be possible. And we've been experiencing that economic recovery for the last nine months. And now with the vaccine, our expectation is you're going to see the economy in North America grow at over 5%. And roughly Canada and the US being about the same at, at about 5 plus percent in terms of GDP growth next year. So this year, 2021, that is a huge support for the stock market. So back to your initial question, Greg, we think the stock markets in both the US and Canada are going to go up over the 2021. We think probably Canada is going to go up a little bit more than the US because of the composition of your economy and frankly, some of the relative valuations of stocks between Canada and the US. I wanted to ask a question. A lot of people, we refer to what happened to the stock market as opposed to the economy. The stock market as a bear market back in March, it seems to behave more like a correction, doesn't it? I mean, in a sense, it was over in three weeks. The trajectory seems to have picked up at exactly the same rate. 
as the previous trajectory prior to the pandemic. So it seemed like the stock market took a necessary breather for a couple of days and then just moved right past it. And what's unusual about, well, there are so many things that are unusual about 2020, but that pattern is extraordinarily unusual. The brevity of the recession is incredibly unusual. The strength of recovery is frankly unusual. And that's all tied to the unprecedented responses of government, just that fiscal spending. In Canada, your savings rate just went through the roof last year. Well, we had nothing to do. <laughs> exactly. It's, by the way, Americans, American savings rates went up too. Real incomes in the United States actually grew during the recession because of oh. the increased unemployment benefits. I believe the same is basically true in Canada. So yeah. consumers didn't have to go in debt to survive that economic downturn. And that is really then probably going to fuel, that's what we think is fueling that 5% growth, because that's a really, 5% growth for the US and Canada at this level of maturity of our economies, that is an extraordinary amount of growth and much, much higher. That's three times higher than what we think is the long-term run rate of the US economy over the next 20 years. So 5% is really good. (laughs) That 5% number sounds a lot like would happen in China, not in the United States and Canada, as far as a growth rate. Yeah, it used to be that we grew that fast. But your national economic growth rate, if you strip away all the complexity, it boils down to basically two things and two things only. So how fast you can grow as a country is completely a function of your workforce growth. Basically, think of it this way, is that if we're all fully employed, our economy can't grow unless we get more workers or we as workers become more productive. So your workforce growth and your productivity gains are the two things that drive your long-term economic growth rate in terms of your potential. The reality is is that Canada and the US, we're already really, really productive. (laughs) We all have smartphones, we all have wireless, we all have all the tools that have been huge for productivity. So our productivity gains will occur, but they're gonna be smaller than the invention of the internet. They're gonna be smaller than the invention of the telephone, they're just not going to be the same. And because our and our populations aren't growing at anywhere near the levels that other countries are, so we're going to have lower growth rates because it's math. People politicize a lot of these issues, but at the end of the day, math matters. And this is kind of a math problem. <laughs> One of the questions we get sometimes, Eric, relates to, okay, well, the economy recovered hugely thanks to all the fiscal and monetary stimulus. And that money came from somewhere. It came from the Federal Reserve and it basically just added to national debts all around the world. And when does that come home to roost? I mean, is that a drag on the economy of the future? How does that get paid for? How does that get paid back? I said the pandemic was a now problem. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Paying for it was a then problem. Remember, politicians, if the politician has the ability to kick the can to the next guy, they're going to do it. That, by the way, doesn't matter what country you live in. That is a universal truth. So it's a problem. National debt is a problem. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of national debt. That means I wouldn't describe myself as an incredibly fiscal conservative, but I don't like debt in my personal life. I don't like the country to have a lot of debt. And the reason is, it's one of those things that it's not a huge problem until it becomes a huge problem. And you never know when it's going to become a huge problem. When it becomes a huge problem is when your creditors begin to wonder whether you can pay the money back. And once that happens, they start charging a higher rate of interest to you to lend you money. Mm -hmm. 
And once that happens, your interest payments become a huge portion of your budget and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If every one of your creditors thinks you're going to go bankrupt, you're going to go bankrupt. That's how it works. But on that note, something interesting occurred over the last few weeks about people believing a company or a country would go bankrupt. Where I'm going with this is GameStop, (laughs) which is obviously on everybody's mind. We had a bunch of hedge funds shorting a particular stock because they thought this was a company that could go bankrupt. And then this community of traders came in and obviously put a short squeeze on this stock. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, is it a fundamental trade? Is it something we're going to see repeated over and over again? It is fundamentally not a fundamental trade. So I can't remember where GameStop started on the price, but it went from, what was it, like five bucks a share to $400 a share? Is that about right? Pretty close. Yeah, I didn't spend a lot of time looking at GameStop because I actually had to ask my sons, is like, do they have an online presence or is that it's the store down the street? Because literally we have one that's down the street. I'm not saying anything bad. Games are great, but nothing fundamentally has happened 100 times more valuable. So remember, it's 100 times more valuable in a world where there were people betting it was going to go bankrupt. That's obviously not a fundamental trade. This is a very technical trade. You're old enough to remember boiler rooms. So oh, yeah. boiler rooms were these very questionable brokerage firms that would pump up penny stocks and get their investors to pile into penny stocks. And because they were buying these tiny, tiny, tiny stocks, the price went up. And then that kind of fed the momentum. I think there's a movie called Boiler Room, which is about this. If your audience wants to kind of see what that means, watch that movie. I think it it may have some profanity in it, I'm guessing. (laughs) But it gives you a sense of what it's about. It seems to me that chat rooms have become the new boiler rooms because that's exactly what happened here. A bunch of people decided they were going to punish some rich hedge funds and then the price moved. And then I think it's really unfortunate because I think a lot of individual investors then saw that big price movement and said, well, I got to get me some of that. You can have the FOMO if you're missing out. That's going to end badly, in my opinion. It's going to end very badly for a lot of people, people losing money. If I don't understand why a stock is going up, I don't invest in things I don't understand, basically. And I think that's like the one piece of advice I give people unsolicited is if you don't understand something, don't buy it because you're always going to be surprised. And half of that surprise is going to be disappointment. (laughs) Probably good advice, Eric. What are the other things that's maybe on a more basic note is thematic investing has come back into the fore. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of thematic investing back in the days of the first tech bubble. And now the move towards themes, whether it's work from home, genomics, global innovation, clean energy. I mean, there's any number of themes and they seem to be driving the market these days. Do you see these as fundamental changes that will continue into the future? Are they hot themes of the day? How do you see those fitting into the portfolios? Some will win, some will lose. That's the nature of this kind of investing and separating the companies and the themes that are the ones that are going to take root and hold and maintain and separating those from those that won't is kind of, that's a complicated problem. It takes real expertise. I think you hit on something like so ESG, so environmental, social, and governance sure. kind of principles that the UN originally brought forth and now has become a very significant force in Europe. ESG. And now regulators are moving to not only allowing ESG principles to be reflected in investment management, but actually requiring it. And that's real. 
if regulators are going to penalize you for not being environmentally conscious, if regulators and governments are going to penalize you for not treating workers well or having poor governance, that's going to affect stock prices. So those are risks that need to be taken into account. And the more people are talking about it and the more regulation that goes into place, I think ESG is here to stay. And I think that's going to become a bigger and bigger driving force in the market, kind of everywhere and particularly in North America. So that one's here to stay. But again, within that, it's complex. So a lot of people would say, well, if you're an environmentally focused and sensitive investor, you shouldn't own big oil companies, integrated oil companies. The largest spenders on green energy technology, the largest capital expenditures are from integrated oil companies. It'll be an issue that will eventually continue to dominate, I think, the investment themes. But like a lot of things, there aren't a lot of simple answers to complicated problems. And so I think be careful just assuming that everything anybody tells you that strikes you. The other thing I tell people is don't invest in the way you think the world should be. Invest in the way the world is. And I usually say that about politics. And in the U.S., it's important to say that. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Eric, you're telling me that there's some interesting politics that have occurred in the U.S. recently? Is that where you're going with? Nothing of note that I can recall, but yeah. (laughs) I was telling people before the election that elections usually don't matter as much as you think they're going to matter in terms of market performance. And I don't think I could give you a better exhibit than what's happened in the last five months in the United States. A huge blue wave was expected the night before the election. It didn't happen looked like it was just going to be the president changing hands. Eventually, the Senate did change hands, but the House got narrower, but the market didn't react. There wasn't even a ripple in the markets when that happened. And then we go through all that hullabaloo between November and January, and markets just went up. We got to January, and it turns out the Democrats won both Senate seats in Georgia. So now you have a fully integrated government, and the market didn't really react. (laughs) Anyway, I just, I see thematic investing Some of it is on point. I think you have to question thematic investing. Is the theme become more important than the fundamentals? And I would personally point to Tesla and ask the question. That company's capitalization is in aggregate, it's bigger than the entire automobile industry, excluding Tesla. And in their best year, they've made under 400,000 cars. And in Toyota, in their best year, made 12 million. Wow. I just, I asked the question. I may be wrong. I fully, I'm not a stock picker. I tell people I'm not a stock picker. That seems lofty. Well, I was going to ask you about valuations because people have been feeling that valuations in the US have been high for years and different CAPE ratios at 30 or 32 for the last five or six years. And that doesn't seem to be an issue, it seems, for many investors. Do you think that valuations are high? Are there better opportunities around the world than the US right now? Well, I think I've already tipped my hand when I said I thought Canada was going to do better than the U.S. We think non-U.S. stocks are going to win. There's a lot of reasons, one of which is that when the global economy expands, the U.S. dollar usually gets weaker. And we've seen that in the last few months. You got kind of an opening trend scene. In the fourth quarter, the dollar, the U.S. dollar went down 4% versus the Canadian dollar. But basically, every other currency was, when you kind of aggregate all the currencies, is about 4%. So People have been talking about growth versus value, which is a huge theme. And I think, frankly, that's probably the one that I would encourage people to be thinking about. The United States has gotten to almost 60% of the world's market capitalization from something that was in the 40s over a decade ago, give you a sense of the dominance of the US market. 
And when you look at it, it was growth stocks that drove that. And let's be very specific. In the last four years, it's mega cap growth. It's the Teslas. It's the Amazons. It's the Apples. It's the Microsofts of the world that have driven it. And their valuations are lofty. The top 10 US stocks now have a market capitalization in excess of any other market in the world other than the US. And then kind of at the culmination of a 11-year period of dominance, you get a pandemic, which is economically tailor-made for those companies. I don't know how many times the Amazon delivery persons come to my door, but it's a lot in the last year because I go to the grocery store and that's the only place I go. And I do that and just mostly to maintain sanity. It's hard to imagine that I think what maybe people are looking at and saying, well, this last year has been extraordinary for him and it has been. But can that really continue? I mean, at the level that the market expects, because the market is expecting over the next 20 years that Amazon grows its earnings by an extraordinary amount over the next decade. And you begin to think about some of the antitrust issues, some of the regulatory issues, not just in the US for those companies. I mean, Europe has been more adamant in a lot of ways around those companies and anti-monopolistic kind of regulations. So they're frothy. I mean, Tesla is the poster child for it, in my opinion. And again, that doesn't mean that they're going to collapse in price. But all it means is that if you're expecting unbelievably good things for a company, the only way that stock outperforms in the future, if what happens is even more unbelievably positive for those companies, because it isn't about whether the news is good, it's whether or not the news is as good as expected. That's what moves stock prices. It's not good news, it's not bad news. Let me ask you this, Eric. So a question we get from a lot of investors pretty regularly is, is there going to be a correction in the future? And we typically answer it with, I guarantee there's going to be a correction in the future. I just don't know when that will be. But is that an appropriate response or how would you answer that question when it's posed to you? So let's put some numbers on that because it's, Colin, it's usually a 10% move down is what is usually thought of a correction. A bear market is a 20% move down. So a correction is 10. The market goes down 10% at some point in a calendar year in the US, but this is pretty true everywhere. 60% of calendar years. So should I expect a 10% drop in the stock price sometimes in 2021? Yes. Sixty <laughs> percent of the time. With sixty percent. Sixty percent of the time. But you had the right answer, Colin, which is do I know when that's going to be? Absolutely not. But I don't think it's going to hold because I think the economy is going to continue to expand and the economy is going to continue to go up the hill. And I think eventually it's going to drag the market back up. So the reality of the situation is, yes, I brace for it. I'm always braced for a 10% reduction. And if anything, in my mind, psychologically, this early in the economic cycle, because unemployment rate in Canada, if I remember correctly, is 8.6. I think you were at five and a half-ish right before the recession hit. The US our unemployment number is a little lower. It's in the six, it's 6.7, but we were at three and a half. So we're both about three plus percent away from where we were at the end of January. That means there's a fair amount of slack in the economy, which means we got a long way to go before inflationary pressure in our mind builds, before economic excesses develop in the marketplace. So we think the expansion is early on, and that's a huge support for the stock market. That matters a lot as it relates to the stock market. Greg, you got one more question for Eric before we get into our lightning round? What should investors be doing now and in the future? And also, What about young investors? Because we're seeing a lot of 
what seems to be, whether it's a democratization of investing or just a whole lot of younger investors who have some time on their hands and a little bit of cash and are looking to get involved. How should investors behave here? First of all, I love the fact that younger investors are coming in, and I'm sure you guys are right there with me. Financial literacy is a hugely important issue for all of us. But look, I don't think it's a coincidence that the last time we had this kind of bubblish nature in tech stocks was a generation ago. Seems like yesterday, but you're right, 20 years. You know, my parents told me when I was a kid not to do a lot of things, but I didn't learn my lesson until I did them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't make mistakes. Young people are going to make mistakes and eventually they'll, as we did, so I'm not like saying they're young, those kids are, we did too. We did exactly the same thing. But look, what I've learned is the best thing to have is a plan. And to make sure that you understand why that plan is the right plan for you. Working with your team, your clients, they have questions as to why you're suggesting this and not that. They should ask. And why don't I have GameStop in my portfolio? <laughs> if you really are dying to do it. I used to always tell my friends when I was a little younger, I would tell them that, and I had some friends who were doing really well. They had their own businesses. They were doing well. And they would talk to me about investments. And I would say, look, all I'm going to tell you is that if you want to go after those GameStop plays or you want to do the fun stuff, take 5 10% of your assets and call it the entertainment fund. I want you to put on everything that you have, the entertainment fund, because that's what it is. But the 90% have a serious plan. Be serious about it. And that's the thing that I think is really important. The worst thing you could have done in this latest bout of volatility that we had in February through March was to sell and not come back once the devastation. If you basically didn't do anything, you were better off at the end of the year, as a general rule, if you were a global investor. And if you perfectly timed it and you sold everything on February 19th and bought everything back on March 23rd, you did awesome. Great. That's what we did, right? Didn't we of do course. that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You knew exactly what those dates were. Uh, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so the thing is, if you did both those things three weeks later, like not three weeks later than those dates, you ended up in the same exact spot you would have been with probably yeah. a lot less emotional energy or fewer transaction costs too. And if you sold and then waited for the right time to go back in, those are the kinds of errors that guys like us, we can't fix. Write it out, understand that your plan assumes bad stuff like February is going to happen. That's what you're planning for. And you don't need to do something more because you already did something when you built the plan for those kinds of events. And right. that hopefully really having faith in that is the important thing. And making sure you have that faith always is a good idea. That's great advice, Eric. And thank you for that. And that takes care of the more formal part of our talk today. But we do have some questions for you. This is, I don't know, what do you call it? Canadian trivia, Colin? Well, we're not going to start with Canada just yet. I've got just a couple generic questions. So when you're not the global chief investment strategist at Russell, Monday to Friday, when you're not there and on the weekends, what do you do for fun? Well, we're not in COVID. <laughs> right now I'm doing absolutely nothing. When people ask me how my weekend was, it was indistinguishable other than fewer phone calls than the rest of the week. So I am the father of three adult male children. So I have three sons. They all live relatively close to us. So we see them and we have one granddaughter who we spend a pretty good amount of time with. And then friends, and we like to travel. My wife and I like to travel a lot and we haven't been doing that either. What about other interests? Are you a reader? Do you read anything or do you binge watch anything? What do you do on those fronts? I am a reader. The thing is, though, people ask me what I read. 
from a professional standpoint, I probably on average spend three hours of my day reading for work. A lot of what I do is about, well, all the things I do is about information and processing information and getting other points of view. So when I read, I read potboiler spy thrillers and historical biographies. My dad was a history professor, so I read a lot of biographies. I also have a bit of ADD. I listen to books while I do about four other things. My mind doesn't rest very easily in the day. (laughs) Greg, should we get into the Canadian-specific content? I think we should. And Eric, this is just for fun. No pressure on this, but Greg and I both grew up in a province called Saskatchewan. Can you spell Saskatchewan for the listeners? S-A-S-K-A-T-C-H-W-A-N. Is that right? Oh, you're oh, so close. So close. You, just, missed the vowel. you missed an E, but you, like that oh. was, I'm quite impressed. That was very good. That's awesome. And we can tell you, you've done better than some of your fellow Americans that we've talked to. I've lived within a hundred miles of Canada. Well, there, my whole life. there you go. <laughs> Eric, what's a toque? Toque. Is that a $2 coin? No, that's that a toonie. <laughs> yeah. A I don't know what a toque is. Okay. Well, you do. You live in Seattle. It gets cold. Do you ever put a, I don't know, a knitted hat on your head that has a pom-pom on the top of it? Yeah, okay. So that's called a toque? Yeah, that's called that's a toque. toque. <laughs> huh, never heard that. We owned a place in Whistler for a while, so I've never actually heard You've that. You've worn a toque, you just didn't know what to call it. There you go. <laughs> Not big on the pom-poms. I like the pom-pom West stocking cap. More of a watch cap guy. <laughs> and what is KD? It's short for something. Let's give them the first word, Greg. Okay, it's craft. It's made by craft. Every university student lives on it for their first two years living on their own. Sells for about well, a dollar a box. <laughs> assuming it's macaroni and cheese. <laughs> yeah. Right on. Yeah, I don't in know can- why it's called KD. but In Canada, it's called craft dinner. Ah, exactly. Yeah. My oldest son when he was in college was threatening to actually have a cookbook, craft macaroni and cheese. And they changed, I think, the formula, not for the better, yeah. I think. No, that's right. Well, yeah, right let's on. only do a couple more here. What about soda? Soda? Do you drink soda? Yes. Well, I went to high school in Buffalo, New York. So yes, I drink soda. Have you ever heard of it called pop? Yep. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, I guess Buffalo is pretty close to the border, so that would translate. But... <laughs> on the border, in fact. <laughs> on the border. Yeah. You share a certain falls, I believe, right? So yeah, that's right. The view from the Ontario side is far superior to the view on the U.S. side. My senior prom was in Niagara Falls. Oh, oh yes. Cool. After living in Toronto, I did spend some time in Niagara Falls, Ontario, and Niagara Falls, New York. There yeah. is a difference. There is definitely a difference. There's, Niagara Falls, New York has seen better economic times. <laughs> That's right. Well, maybe to finish off, have you ever witnessed a sorry fight? Sorry, Greg, this isn't a good question to ask. Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have asked that. My mistake. No. I should have realized no, that. It's my bad, Greg. Sorry about oh, I'm that. I'm sorry. No, no. Sorry. sorry. It's, it's all my fault. No, I couldn't. Sorry. We got to let Eric answer the question, Greg. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> it's a Canadian thing. Canadians apologize a lot. My mistake. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have. Yeah, you're very polite. (laughs) I'm going to go with it's a fight between a pot dealer and his client in South Vancouver, British Columbia. (laughs) Specifically, the Surrey. The Surrey. There we go. Okay. Close enough. We can now get every British Columbia stereotype built into that. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, listen, I appreciate your being a good sport on that. And there's probably the odd U.S. trivia that Colin and I might not get either. Lots. We wouldn't get lots. We'll save that for next time. Okay, well, I will take away two. 
(laughs) Thanks for your time today, Eric. We really appreciate you joining us for our show. And hopefully we can have you back at some point for, I don't know, another fun discussion. Yeah, great. Thanks. Enjoyed it. Well, Greg, that was a very fun and interesting discussion with Eric Ristabin, the Global Chief Investment Strategist at Russell Investments. It was. He's an interesting guy. He obviously enjoys his job a lot. He's a very jocular and happy-go-lucky guy, but knows a lot. Knows a ton. I mean, we're just scratching the surface there, but literally we could probably could have talked for days about markets and inefficiencies and efficiencies. Well, we'll have him back. That's for sure. All right. Well, I guess that does it for today. So remember, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcast from. And thanks for joining us. And I guess, Greg, till next time. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.